Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Today's discussion will focus on the criticality of human factors and social science approaches in countering insider threats. I'm honored to have Dr. Eric Lang as my guest in this episode. Dr. Lang is the director of the Personal and Security Research Center housed in the United States Department of Defense. He's also the author of the article, Seven Commandments for Understanding and Countering Insider Threats. It's a great article. I'd like to share a quick stat from the article that speaks to the importance of this discussion. Research finds that there was a 44% increase in insider threat incidents across all types of organizations. And 56% of the reported incidents was due to negligence. What is equally alarming is the average annual cost to remediate a negligence incident was $6.6 million. So this discussion is of extreme significance. And I'm delighted that Dr. Lang can join me. So once again, Eric, welcome to the show. Delighted that you are here. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So Eric, um, let's first talk about yourself, your professional journey, before we dive into the details. Sure. I have my doctorate degree in social psychology from the University of Michigan. And I've always been interested in, in psychology. And in graduate school, I loved teaching. I loved doing research. And at some point, I had to decide between a standard academic career, going and becoming a university professor, or more of a research emphasis. And I, I decided I love doing the research more. So out of graduate school, I accepted a position at a, a think tank called the American Institutes for Research. And I love doing all the research in various domains, education and health for local and federal government customers. And it was a mix of basic and applied social science. But uh, then I had an experience that, that was really changed the direction of my interests. I was invited by the then senior scientist at American Institutes for Research to join him on an international project and then to take it over after he retired. And it involved helping the ministries of health in Botswana and Lesotho. And if some people don't know, Lesotho is a, a small country embedded within South Africa. 
So, you know, I could barely contain my excitement that this seemed like a a research adventure and a once in a lifetime opportunity and I I offered my services and they they said yes and I went off and that's where I really got the applied psychology bug seeing how science-based recommendations and tools could help in this case government and communities on Monday morning so I've been focusing on applied psychology ever since fantastic i think we have two like minds here even i've always been fascinated or um, driven by the need to do research that informs practice that's wonderful to hear so eric let's uh, get into the article that you authored like i said at the beginning i i found the article very interesting once again for the benefit of the listeners the article is titled seven commandments for understanding and countering insider threats how about we start with a little bit of a motivation for the article what got you thinking about writing this article two things first and foremost there's a lot of work going on to try to understand and counter insider threats and in my view and based on the research too much of it focuses on technology and those tend to be simple responses to a problem you know for example uh, an organization has an incident so a ceo says let's buy more user activity monitoring software and put it on the servers and so they feel like they've done something you know they've spent money they've installed something and that they're now perfectly protected well are they better protected yes is it sufficient no and the primary motivation is that there was not enough attention to the human factors side so technology is very important it's necessary but it's not sufficient so i wanted to help readers and and people both in government and outside government understand the human factors involved in insider threat and some of the science based recommendations and tools that they could apply so that, that was the the primary motivation secondarily there was too much of a focus in my view on malicious insiders and of course those are devastating uh, incidents when you have a spy or someone stealing intellectual property or you know a terrorist or workplace violence all of those kinds of things but because societies are ever more connected by IT systems it turns out the majority of incidents are actually non-malicious insiders they either are failing to to understand their training or they're not motivated sufficiently to care about security protocols or there's poor organizational climates uh, or they might be struggling with alcohol or a, a drug issue and they simply fail to manage you know the security protocols make good decisions they click on bad emails and they cause data spills and or they let uh, outside malicious attackers in inadvertently so i wanted to bring more attention to the non malicious insiders as a problem and what can be done about them thank you interesting you said that it's mostly non malicious insider threats as compared to malicious insider threats 
For the benefit of the listeners, let me share some, when we talk about unintentional or negligent insider incidents, we are talking about poor endpoint security, unsecured cloud systems, undeployed critical patches, backup failures or corruption, Internet of Things device insecurity, inadequate bring-your-own-device policies, unsecured Wi-Fi networks. It brings to mind the work that I'm doing in this space on cybersecurity readiness. My research is also very qualitative. I'm also a huge believer in recognizing the importance of the human factor. It is quite unbelievable that these kinds of negligence are taking place when companies are being sued and they are being charged. The common theme across the board for these lawsuits is gross negligence. That's why your article makes such sense. So you shared seven commandments. The first one goes, human factors are paramount. Thou shall not worship technology above personal and social dynamics solutions. Tell us more about it. Uh, I'm happy to do that, but I, I want to back up just a second because you made the point about endpoint security being a type of non-malicious insider threat. And I, I wanted to point out it gets a little bit more complex there. So as an example, an IT person fails to put on patches that he or she are required to do. So that's a human failure, but you can ask, why did that happen? And often it's not the individual. It's a symptom of a bad organization or system or culture. So, you know, when you dive deeper, often that type of endpoint failure happens because the organization is making demands of their IT personnel without giving them the sufficient personnel, time, and resources to keep up to date on patches and, and to handle the things they're required to do. So it's almost a guaranteed failure. The system administrator who fails to put on that patch in a timely manner is the last point where it fails. But in terms of the cause and the remedy, often you need to look at the systemic and cultural factors and the leadership and whether they are listening to what resources what labor, you know, what's needed to ensure that they do have the security that they're requiring. Yeah, point very well made. You're exactly right. Uh, the organizational culture has a huge role to play, and we'll be talking about that in a bit. Uh, we'll talk about the role of top management in creating what I like to call a high-performance information security culture. Thank you for that. Go ahead. Um, you wanted to talk about the first commandment? Right. Well, the first commandment, like all good first commandments, is overarching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just speaks, again, to the importance of human factors. And I could give lots of examples, but, you know, one of them, I could cite some research we've done on spies against America, government spies. We have a, a database. There's sadly over 200 of them uh, since the Second World War in terms of convictions. And we looked at a recent set of trends, I think it was 1985 to 2017, and about exfiltration. So that's uh, 
taking sensitive information out of the protected environment for reasons other than what it should be used for. And we find even though that sensitive information is in organizations with very good security and lots of of, uh, security guards and protocols and and standard operating procedures, in 73% of the successful exfiltration incidents, it was conducted without using technology. So the people taking the information either printed it out, they hid it in their clothing, they memorized it. And the point there is the insiders understood the security uh, protections in their own environment and easily subverted them. So it just shows the technology, again, is necessary but not sufficient, and humans will find a way around it. And in this case, 73% succeeded in the exfiltration despite all the technology. And in the way they did it, the technology that was in place would not have stopped them. And a second example is uh, Department of Defense used to keep some oh trend reports on how foreign adversaries would get sensitive industrial information. And year after year, the successful method was the same. Uh, so let me ask you, what do you think that successful method was? <laughs> oh, you got me there. Hmm. Repeat the question. Repeat the what question. Was, what was a common successful method for foreign adversaries to get sensitive U.S. industrial information? Just eavesdropping on the network traffic, plugging into different types of networks, you know, talking to their counterparts here in the U.S.? Even simpler. The answer (laughs) is they asked for it. It was a form of social engineering in very many cases. So, for example, let's say I'm scheduled to speak at some place and they can see on the schedule I'm supposed to be in Washington, D.C. So they might call up someone in my office and they say, hi, I work with Dr. Lang. We have uh, you know, a project together. He greatly needs this revision in a finding. Oh, Dr. Lang's on the road right now. Oh, well, he's going to have a serious problem in his presentation without this. So if you could just pull up the XYZ sensitive doc and let me have that, then I'll, you know, I'll get it to him and we'll make sure his presentation goes well. So despite 128-bit encryption and firewalls and all those things, some, quote, helpful person in the workplace goes down and provides sensitive information to someone who told a good story. And it, it's a, over and over again, it's a human factors failing that causes the insider problem. You know, this reminds me of Another very compelling incident that I mention in my book where this guy goes to his friend who is the CEO of a company and he's looking to get the security contract. So they have a little kind of a challenge between the two of them where the friend says, okay, prove to me that you're capable of earning our contract. Do something to prove to me that you're really good at what you do. So the next day, he dressed up as, I won't take the name of the specific company, but he dressed up as a utility official, let's say. And he walked in the door and 
you know, there was a lady at the reception and she he told him that I have been called in. There's been a network outage. Uh, you need to let me in to this room because I need to check out the servers. So she saw his uniform and he looked pretty convincing. He sounded convincing. She let him in. And then he was able to, and again, I'm simplifying this. There is more to it. He was able to access the system, penetrate the system, get printouts of confidential information. And then he walks back to his friend CEO's office with the printouts and said, hey, it didn't take me really long to get this information. But by the way, the lady at the reception is really nice. You know, Don't hold it against her. She was just trying to be nice and helpful. And I said, look, this is urgent. Please let me in. It won't take very long. And she did. So it speaks to what you just shared, that people on the spur of the moment, they're thinking different things. And then when you make the case that I'm Eric Lang's assistant, need this information, can you please share? They often will not think three times or four times before sharing the information. I think it happens to many of us. So that is so true. Moving along to your second commandment, where you say employees are an organization's greatest strength, especially for identifying insider threats. Thou shalt improve supervisor and co-worker reporting. Many employees are reluctant to report potential threats they encounter. So the obvious question is, why the challenges? And I'm sure organizations would recognize them and have in place appropriate structures and mechanisms to encourage more honest reporting. Your thoughts? This is a, a classic example. And the reason it's important is if you think about all the different kinds of insider threats, and again, it could be espionage, theft, vandalism, terrorism, workplace violence, and even some of the non-malicious incidents over and over again, after the incident has occurred, when you do kind of a forensic look at, at how it happened and how it could have prevented, you find in almost every incident, someone in the workplace either knew something or saw something and they didn't report it, or they didn't report it in a timely manner, or the report was mishandled. So then you'd say, well, they needed a see something, say something program. And what you find is almost all of them had see something, right. say something programs. And I'll tell you, at least at the policy level, the organizations put out the right policy because policy is important, but the execution of it and bringing employees into correct awareness and engagement is the most important thing. So why do employees in an organization with a see something, say something policy often hesitate to report. And there's a number of social psychological factors. You know, we have cultural norms. Don't be a snitch. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there people feel there's a code of silence. They might feel they don't want a coworker to lose their job. Uh, they might have a fear of retaliation. Uh, that goes to, you know, the organizational culture and, you know, why do they have that fear of retaliation? And something that social psychologists call diffusion of responsibility. Hmm. So this is an interesting one. If you are in an environment and you're aware of something that of potential concern, but there are many other people also in the environment, you think, 
lots of people have the same awareness I do, I'm sure someone else will report it. And, you know, over and over again in social psychological research, we find that almost the opposite is always true. Even for, you know, examples of uh, driving on a road, if you're driving on a busy highway and someone's broken down on the side, you think, well, thousands of people are aware. I'm sure someone will stop and help. But if you're on a country road and you know that you might be the only person that day to be driving that that lonely road and you see someone who needs help on the side, you're more likely to stop. That person is actually more likely to get help that day than on the busy highway. Very interesting. Very true. Diffusion of responsibility. Wow. A couple of thoughts here. I recollect an instance um, where this senior leader in the security function of a large organization had access to intelligence about a vulnerability, but he didn't do anything about it. It supposedly sat on his desk and the organization paid a huge price for it. And I'm sure there are many such instances which go unreported. One of the recommendations that I've made in this context is developing a sophisticated reporting program whereby you log the intelligence And then you also log the decision that is taken based on that intelligence. And this is helpful for for a variety of reasons. Of course, I've deviated a little bit from insider threat, but it it is applicable to insider threat as well. When you are logging these intelligence alarms, at least there is a record of what are the types of incidents that are worth evaluating. And then there is the record. What was the rationale behind decisions such as We will ignore, we will watch, no, we need to act promptly. But at least if you have a formal process in play and you follow through with it, even when you get breached and it results in a lawsuit, you have a little bit of a better defense that you are following a proper system. But despite all that, things can happen. So that's been my thought around improving the reporting structure. But also to your point, there are these other factors, whereas there's fear, there is concern about being called a snitch, as you said. So there are many psychological factors that could come in the way of somebody alerting the organization about a possible insider threat. So your point, yeah. I'd like to expand on what you said, because um, there are a couple of things. First, you have to go to basics. Has the organization made it very clear to employees what exactly to report? Has the organization made it very clear how a report is made and to whom? And then most importantly, what will happen after a report is made? And there the organization, and in almost every commandment, that it almost goes back to some element or interaction with culture, because you always have to ask, is there a disparity between policy and perception, because employees act based on their perception, based on their understanding, their concerns, their fears. So the only way to do that is to talk with employees and give them a chance to voice those concerns and voice their understandings. What do they think the reporting program is about? Give them a chance to ask questions. What will happen? You know, is there a presumption of innocence? 
What if the person just is experiencing stress at home? So um, what I can tell you is indicators of human behavior often are ambiguous. They're just the start of the process. So employees need to understand and organizations need to understand in the development of their program that it's all about follow-up. So someone gets reported because they have seemingly suspicious behavior, more often than not, it is not a, a malicious attempt to, the, to steal or, or hurt the organization. It's someone who's at an early stage of a drug or an alcohol or just uh, an acute stress problem at home. And they don't need to be reported to a counterintelligence office. They need to get help from HR. They need to get support. Uh, and that's, you know, the appropriate response. But employees will have concerns because they're reporting something in and the person they're reporting about they think might automatically lose their job or it's a personal issue. Maybe they shouldn't report it. So they have to have a dialogue, an open, honest dialogue in what we call a psychologically safe environment to voice their questions, voice their concerns and engage with the representatives of the program or the organization to say, here's how this program will work. Here's what will happen to your reports. Here's what we're doing about anonymity, you know, and it achieves two things. One, clarity. It also builds trust and the trust is the basis for engagement and self-motivation by the employees to report and do the right thing. But that's the hard thing. You cannot mandate trust and integrity, and you cannot put it out in a policy statement. It is a development, often a relationship based on communication and what the employees see the organization doing. If they see the organization bringing the hammer down or acting inappropriately, it undermines their trust. So, there needs to be this relationship development, trust development, engagement development, and the organization has to model the appropriate and fair behaviors in the program that the policy talks about. Very true. Essentially, you talked about a very deliberate approach of putting together a system. And I think this speaks to the heart of your article, where technology is a very important enabler but to le leverage it most optimally, you have to find that fit, that alignment between people, process, and technology. So unless you have, let's say, a culture of transparency, unless you have a culture of empathy, unless you have a culture of trust, unless you provide the right kinds of training, the incentive system, so you have to take a holistic approach to implement better practices. And even if they are technology solutions driven, for them to be effective, you have to take into consideration like the psychological factors. So I will be very surprised if great organizations, when they make decisions to improve cybersecurity, governance, cybersecurity, readiness, those decisions are not influenced by experts in human psychology or the clinical psychologist or whoever the right person is, over and above the insights from the technologist, the legal. 
So you have to draw upon these sources of expertise to be able to offer a solution that really works. I don't know if I did a good job of trying to reiterate some of the things you said, Eric, but... Well, I, I think you and I also share a defective gene that we'll call optimism. <laughs> because um, what often, too often happens is I'm talking with some organizational leader and they say, well, yes, we see the importance of all these human factors and we see how this is borne out systematically through social science research. So what can we do on Monday morning? And I say, in many instances, the the most important thing is to spend some good human time, for example, the direct supervisor with his or her supervisees. That's often how you develop relationships and trust uh, and engagement. Also, there are some security-related training that is better done in person with modeling and behavioral practice. And, you know, these mind-numbing PowerPoints don't do it. They simply don't achieve the skill-building goal. And they say, oh, but that's going to take time. And I say, yes, it will. You know, in-person, small group conversations take more time than sending out a canned PowerPoint. And they say, oh, but time is money. And I say, well, that, you know, I can't simply say you have to do it. Every organization has, you know, cost, benefit, assessments, there are opportunity costs for the time spent doing one thing, for the money spent doing one thing. But over and over again, if you want to get engaged employees, if you want security trained employees, if you want employees that trust their organization, it's going to require personal time. And by the way, you don't just get mitigated insider threat you don't just get better security when you have more engaged, more trusting employees. And I put some of the statistics in the paper. You also get employees who leave less often, who take fewer sick days, who are more productive, you know, who have better morale. So there's a clear direct and indirect return on investment, but uh, too often organizational leaders want the quick and cheap fix. And they say, well, we'll just put out a policy of what's necessary, and then we'll send the annual PowerPoint training so that they have the, the knowledge they need. And that often does not meet the mail. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know where to start. But uh, yeah, means uh, we are in that age, or we have been in that era, or many eras now of seat of the pants, kind of decision-making, always under pressure of meeting Wall Street expectations, symbolic reactions. You have a breach, fire the CISO, trying to get the word across or get the message across that, look, we are being very prompt and we are taking action. But what's lacking, what's missing? And this is where I really liked what you said in your abstract. This one sentence, it speaks to what I have tried to convey through my research on cyber. And I'll read this sentence. Without individual sincere commitments, the most extensive 
insider threat policies fail. Again, at the cost of trying to come across as somebody trying to promote his framework, my f- framework of commitment, preparedness, and discipline, the CPD framework on holistic governance, is anchored exactly on the fact, the reality, that unless there is a serious, substantive, sincere commitment from the standpoint, from the standpoint of top management, you're unlikely to get the buy-in you need for everyone to do their part so you can reduce the incidence of insider threats. So it really comes down to how sincerely you feel about it. When I say you, I mean the leadership and what steps are you taking and are employees seeing it, recognizing the intent, and they are saying, okay, you know what, we also need to do our part. So creating that kind of a culture, I like to call it the high-performance information security culture, because it takes a while to instill that culture. Like you said, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not a solution that you will achieve on Monday morning. But if you sow the seeds now, then over a period of time, even with employee turnover, even with turnover in the leadership, the organization, again, that I'm being optimistic here, will be able to sustain a higher level of readiness than what we see today, That where we see tremendous spikes. They'll go through periods of extreme concern, that's, which is almost reactive to some incidents that they experienced. And then after time passes, they're back to their old ways. And again, an incident happens, again, a concern. So this kind of a reactive approach, in my humble opinion, doesn't cut it, but it is what it is. So, so you, you summarized it well. And the challenge that I try to, to help leadership and, and program managers with is, you know, how to get started. Because at the broad level, we've just been discussing it. Yes, human factors are complex. They're critically important. They're kind of challenging to deal with because, you know, there's no just out-of-the-box way to install something on Monday morning. So where can we start to focus? And I, I take the responsibility to provide an answer to that. So one of the things I emphasized in the paper is so much of the human factors, problems, and benefits really derive from the management style and behavior of first-line supervisors. And sadly, despite the fact that there's, you know, at least 30 solid years of industrial organizational psychology and business management literature, too many managers are promoted based on technical skill. So they have technical skill or good sales, and suddenly they're put in charge of a team supervising individuals. And to be an effective supervisor, you need more than technical acumen. You need to know something about active listening and mentoring and creating a psychologically safe environment for productive debates. And organizations often don't give those first-line supervisors the training in those, we'll call it people skills, soft skills, and they're often not given the time to do it correctly. So let's say, you know, there's one check in one on one with your direct reports every week or two weeks. Oh, that takes time. And those supervisors are under pressure to meet 
you know, sales goals or productive goals or whatever it happens to be. Well, that's where senior leadership comes in. They need to recognize the importance of the human side of those supervisor behaviors and insist that those first-line supervisors take that time. So then the organization has a responsibility to try to create a metric or a system that is accountable or accounts for the fact that that's an important part of the supervisor's job. He or she should do it, should get rewarded when they do it well. And then the supervisor feels it's a known part of the job. They have the time and support to do it well, and they get the training that they need for all the things I mentioned, active listening, psychologically safe environment, mentoring, human problem solving, all of those kind, team building, all of those kinds of things. And the supervisor has an outsized influence on the perceptions, the feelings, the motivation, the engagement of his or her direct report. So if we do a better job with the direct supervisors, we will get better organizational culture, better productivity, better trust, better engagement, and mitigated insider threats. Thank you for sharing that well-made points. It's really important to recognize the importance of instilling not only hard skills, but also soft skills. So when we are training cybersecurity specialists, we need to recognize that while the technical training is important, understanding human behavior, learning how to communicate effectively, there are so many aspects that and, need to be... And if I can interrupt, not just cybersecurity experts. Anyway. All, all supervisors, yeah. all team leads yeah. need yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. The reason I mentioned cybersecurity experts is because the cybersecurity training often focuses on technical training. The more I understood the phenomenon, I recognized the role that different disciplines played. So there is a need for the development of softer skills, and you are validating that, and several others guests have said the same thing. So that's great to hear. Yes, Let please. me ask you, and I hope this is okay. I know your your subjects often don't turn the tables on you, but I want to ask you a question as a please. reasonable example. Please. So again, there's probably a good 30 years of, of established social science literature that answers this question, and most managers and, and leaders often will not get it. So let me ask you, what do you think are any of the top three things that most employees care about for their job? What are they looking for? And I'll tell you, it's these three things that get them engaged. And if one or more are not present, it's why they leave or get frustrated or, you know, contributes to bad organi organizational culture. What do employees want out of their work? Great question. I will give you a response based on my personal expectations sure. because uh, I, I'm not privy to the research, so I would not want to guess. But if you were asking me that question, the first thing I'd say, feeling valued, feeling recognized, feeling respected. That would be the first thing that I would look for. Second, opportunity to grow, opportunity to develop my skill sets, my talent. Third, 
a respectful, I may have said this earlier, a respectful, congenial work environment. To sum it up, and you know, this reminds me, I was attending a conference, uh, a major conference many years ago. I'm talking 2015 in Orlando. And one of the speakers said something very interesting. The discussion was on cybersecurity best practices. And one of the speakers said, do you know what our finding is? One of our principal findings and folks in the audience said, what? Happy employees helps mitigate insider threats. And this is 2015. And I've shared that many, many times. But how do you create that kind of a culture whereby people come to work because they truly want to be there, not because they're earning a paycheck? Even in my organization at the University of Georgia, they conducted a survey, 100 plus questions, trying to understand what, if I may summarize in my own way, what is a happy culture? How can you create a happy culture? So I don't know what the end result was of that survey, but at least it was nice to see some steps being taken to try to understand the employee mindset. I'm going to stop there. Did I answer your question? <laughs> well, uh, first, you hit many of the key factors. Not surprised because, uh, of course, you supervise students and, and you have a lot of professional experience. I'm, I'm And I think what I'm going to, to give you as the social science answer yeah. also speaks to your the point you raised about happy, because happy is kind of collinear, overlapping with satisfied. So over and over again, my summary of the social science literature, the three things that employees are looking for, and then there's a fourth that's coming up fast. And the first and most important is meaning. Employees want a sense of meaning in the work that they're doing, especially that they are using their skills to contribute in some valuable way. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they're looking for a sense of agency, for reasonable control over how, when, and where they do their work rather than being micromanaged. And the third thing is they're looking for a sense of fairness, that whatever the rules are at the organization, they are reasonably fair and they are being treated fairly and equitably relative to other employees. So those are the three things that employees look for. So many managers don't understand those basics. So of course, it's hard for them to empathize and create the culture and relate to the employees when they don't understand you know, those three things. The fourth thing that literature seems to be showing is a reasonable and satisfying social environment. So colleagues that they like and respect and respect them and that's, uh, if I had to add a fourth to the, the three things, you know, the opposite of that being a toxic environment with uh, toxic, aggressive, or disrespectful employees. So um, those are the top three, and the, the social environment being the fourth. Fantastic. Well, Derek, this has been great. Before we conclude, if you would like to share a few final thoughts. I would just invite listeners to get involved. There is almost nothing about the workplace or security that does not involve human factors. And it's not just correcting problems, 
but it's often helping individuals to thrive, to be productive, to be happy, to find meaning in the workplace. And I admit it is complex. Social science stuff is mushy. It interacts with a lot of different things. But if you're an organizational leader, embrace the mush. Get yourself some social science uh, consultant, uh, empower your group to get involved. Often there's good practices and tools either freely provided by the government or available from other sources. Uh, and do what you can to understand and improve the human factor conditions in your organization. Thank you very much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Hope to talk to you again on this very interesting topic. Thank you. And thank you. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Take care. A special thanks to Dr. Eric Lang for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.